0: second session on uh, the nature of the Dhimma Pact and the way it worked. And in this session what I'd like to do is firstly speak about the implications of a, jihad pact vi- of a Dhimma Pact violation, the implications of it being considered that the Dhimmis hadn't kept to their conditions of surrender. Uh, and then I'd like to um, look at the psychological conditioning involved in living as a Dhimmi. And then we'll look at... Um, the way in which the Dhimma pact really was wound down a bit uh, as the Europeans uh, entered Muslim countries uh, towards the um, end of the 19th, early 20th century, and finally the return of the Dhimma. Um, and then in, later, in a later session, we'll discuss uh, the whole denial of this uh, this history and uh, and attempts to conceal it. But let's begin by thinking about what happens when the pact is uh, the pact is broken. Ibn Qudama, a Muslim uh, expert on this subject, had written that a protected person, a dhimmi, who violates his protection agreement, whether by refusing to pay the tribute or to submit to the laws of the community, makes his person, that is life, and his goods halal. That means a Muslim can take them if they wish. And indeed, in the Pact of Umar, the dhimmis uh, make these conditions uh, for their surrender, and they say, these are the dhimmis speaking in this early pact, These are the conditions that we set against ourselves and followers of our religion in return for safety and protection. If we break any of these promises that we set out for your benefit against ourselves, then our dhimma is broken and you are allowed to do with us what you are allowed to do with people of defiance and rebellion. So what they're saying is, uh, if we break any of those conditions, you can treat us as if we were in rebellion. In fact, what that means is the jihad can restart. Uh, The the Yemeni scholar, al shokani Uh, writing in the early part of the 19th century, said that if their obligations are not fulfilled, they revert to the situation in which their persons and property are no longer protected by the agreement, namely the state affairs prior to the agreement of protection. So, basically you go back to jihad conditions. Now, a jihad condition means massacre of the men, looting of the property, and seizing of the wives and children as slaves. For the women, it means uh, rape. So, what you'll see is that where the dhimmi community has been regarded as acting up or not staying in line with their surrender, um, these, uh, these threefold uh, patterns of looting, rape and killing of, of the men. And the laws of jihad give permission to Muslims to regard the Dhimmis as their property and as halal to be taken, enslaved, raped and so on under those circumstances. In fact, some scholars, such as Muhammad ibn Yusuf, uh, Muhammad, Muhammad ibn Yusuf at Fayish, said that this is a duty, a wajib, of uh, slavery and killing. So it's not just something Muslims can do, but they should do it uh, if the non-Muslims have failed to keep their their, their side of the the bargain. Now, in the doctrine of jihad, that is of warfare uh, to enforce Islam, there's a distinction between a communal obligation of jihad and a personal obligation. The communal obligation is the obligation of the whole Muslim community to advance Islam. And in Islamic law, it's the caliph's job to get the army together and extend Islam into other countries. But if Islamic territory is invaded or is under threat, it becomes an individual obligation. So every Muslim is responsible to fight. I mean, that's the problem now in countries where there are Western soldiers serving in Afghanistan or Iraq or or stationed in Saudi Arabia. The argument was made that since there are infidels, armed infidels in Islamic countries, then it becomes an individual obligation to wage war, wage jihad. So you don't need a caliph in order to declare jihad. Now, what happens when there's a dhimmi pact violation is you suddenly have these dhimmis that are regarded as being in rebellion in Islamic territory, so it becomes an individual obligation to wage jihad. And uh, so, in fact, you get a mass uprising against the dhimmis. So it's not just something left to the state to deal with. Um, of course, if girls are taken in this, uh, these sorts of attacks, they'd be, in due course, assigned to Muslim partners and uh, perhaps become their slaves or their wives... The boys would be forcibly Islamised. These are the boys who haven't yet entered puberty and um, they could be used as slaves and usually they would be converted to Islam. And uh, Sharia law, in fact, encourages this and encourages uh, the freeing of these slaves when they've, um, if, they, if they do the right thing. So they end up as, as Muslims. They, they augment the Islamic community and that's happened many, many times down through history. For example, in Muhammad's conquest of the Jews of Medina and Kaibar, there were many slaves taken and, as I said, uh, he himself picked up uh, some a couple of women, one a concubine and one a wife, in those attacks. So, legally, the only thing that separates the Dhimmi community from these very uh, fearful outcomes of dispossession, uh, rape and um, also killing of the men is the Dhimma Pact and their, their uh, protection that they get from this pact. It's sometimes called a pact of protection and it's claimed this means the Muslims protect them but in fact, the, the main meaning is that they're protected against the jihad. It's a bit of a sad state of affairs because the Quran actually says that Muslims can attack even if they fear treachery. So in chapter 8, verses 55 onwards, it says these um, non-Muslims break their compact every time. And if you fear treachery at their hands... Um, dissolve the covenant you have with them. So there's even incitement in the Quran to Muslims that if they suspect that non-Muslims are not going to keep the deal, they have a justification to attack them. Now the problem is if the Muslim community has a a potential lawful permission to loot, to rape and to kill, then this creates um, an environment in which that threat hangs over the community. And every single person in the community knows that if they cross the line, their relatives and friends and family could all suffer and also if a, if a if a Christian girl is walking down the road and Muslim men are watching her, they know and she know or could be aware that she could be under this threat of rape if if uh, the community steps out of line. so it creates um, a culture of abuse in which extrajudicial that is in Sharia law illegal attacks such as kidnapping of people and taking of their property without proper legal permission in Sharia law can easily happen and and Remember also that non-Muslims are not allowed to bear witness in their own defence, so they're very vulnerable anyway. So this disability of of non-Muslims in the courts and also the threat of these attacks means that there's a a climate of abuse. Um, Let me review a few cases where Dhimmi communities have been attacked in reprisals because they've been claimed to be not following the Dhimma pact properly. I've mentioned one already. In 1066, the Jews of Granada, about 3,000, were massacred and this was after 40 years during which the vizier of the city had been a Jew. And uh, first uh, a man, Samuel HaNagid, and then his son Joseph. And the, the crime of the Jews was that the, um, the Muslim authorities had appointed a Jew to help lead the city. And this was regarded as a pact violation uh, because uh, this man was in a position of authority which was forbidden by the dhimma. And in fact, uh, Muslims, some Muslim scholars warned um, against this danger of, uh, um, of appointing dhimis to, to high positions. Um, the Moroccan scholar, Al um said that Jews who occupy a position serving a sovereign or vizier or some other important person are in a state of permanent rebellion against their status, so they have no protection. Let me just explain that again. He's saying that if a Jew is employed by the Muslim ruler to be in a high position, then that Jew is in rebellion against their status and they have no protection. What that means is it's very dangerous if the Muslim ruler promotes you to a position of authority because you might then be regarded as not subservient enough. He said, To kill a Jew who's lost his status by gaining favour from a leader is more meritorious than an expedition into infidel territory... You have to persecute people of this sort, whether they may be find, found. He said, Slay them, take their wives, children and goods. Those who assist Jews, who are appointed to position of authority and become accomplices in these transgressions, will ach- experience the same eternal damnation as their favourites. So this is a Muslim scholar speaking against the practice of using dhimmis in positions of authority or leadership in the community. It's ironic, really, because sometimes people have said, look, isn't it the case that under Muslims sometimes Jews were appointed in high positions? It's true they were, but there were also religious scholars who said, aha, they're no longer protected because they're breaking um, their, their pact. Another um, famous massacre was of the Serbian leaders. It's called the Massacre of the Serbian Knights in 1804 uh, when all the Serbian nobility were, were, were killed. Um, this was, um, uh, uh, this was uh, by, the, by the Janissaries, the Ottoman soldiers, and it, in fact it triggered off a whole uprising uh, against Turkish rule, which led eventually to the emancipation of the Serbs. Another very interesting case was in 1860 when more than 5,000 Christians were massacred in Damascus. This was in response to the official abolition of the, of the Dimmer system by the Turks in Constantinople, Istanbul. Um, they had, under pressure from the Europeans, declared that um, the Dimmer no longer applied and that Christians were equal with Muslims, in a sense, before the law. But this caused Muslims in Damascus to be very angry with the Christians. And um, there were visitors there who recorded what happened. There was preaching in the mosques uh, that since the Christians were no longer acting submissively, they were riding horses and things like that, um, they had forfeited their protection. And then there was a classic jihad war procedure scenario with looting, the men were killed, rape and abduction of the women and the children. Interestingly, a number of mission agencies were founded out of caring for all the refugees of that very famous event. A lot of uh, attention um, was given to it in the media around the world. Many families lost every adult male at the time, and most of the Christian ministers were killed. Some of the ab- abducted children were never recovered, um, and some of them had been for- circumcised when they were recovered. And it's estimated that uh, more women were raped than men killed. In fact, and hundreds escaped by converting to Christianity to Islam. Uh, some were able to come back to Christianity, but but not all. Some stayed as Muslims. They'd just been too traumatised uh, anyway. This was all officially investigated by the Earl of Dufferin, an English um, noble, and uh, did a, a detailed report, based particularly on the Reverend Robson, who was an Irish missionary in Damascus and observed everything. It was impossible for the... It didn't prove possible for the Turkish authorities to prosecute anyone. No one was convicted of any of the killings after the event. And that fits also with the principle that you you you're not, can't be held liable for taking a dhimmi's life. So there was no consequence. And um, Robson, the, the missionary who described this, he said this all happened because the dhimmi had broken down. He said the Mohammedans of Damascus had come to believe that the Christians, by taking advantage of the privileges and liberties conceded to them during the last 30 years, that is by the Turks, had placed themselves in a state of disobedience and rebellion and forfeited their right to security and protection, and it was therefore lawful to kill and rob them and carry off their women and children. So that's someone who observed the whole progress of the event. It's very interesting that just a few years before, the Ottoman Grand Vizier Mustafa Resid had opposed the Turkish reforms. He'd opposed abolishing the Dhamma. And the reason that he opposed the Dhamma is that he argued that um, there would be a great massacre if equality was given to non-Muslims. It would place them at risk in, he was actually right. Sometimes the massacres or attacks resulted from intervention by a foreign power. For example, in 1907, there was an attack on European interests in Casablanca, and as a result, the French warship, the Galilee, bombarded Casablanca. And as soon as the first cannon shot was fired and was going into Casablanca, um, and one reporter said, as if the Arabs were only awaiting for that sign, thousands of Muslims rose up and began to pillage and destroy the Jewish quarters of the city. It went on for three days until the French soldiers landed. One Jewish leader, Isaac Pisa, who conducted an investigation after the incident, reported that 30 Jews were killed, 60 wounded, an unlimited number of rapes took place, and more, hundred, more than 250 young women, girls and children were abducted. So these are the common patterns, looting, killing, um, enslavement and, 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 and rape. The most serious anti-Dhimi reprisal uh, in recent history was the genocide of the Armenians during, before, during and, and uh, after World War I, uh, following, in fact, there were massacres of hundreds of thousands in the 1890s already. And the trigger for that was the aspiration, the desire of the Armenians for independence, just as the Serbs had become by fighting. And um, independence, political independence, is an ultimate rejection of the Dhimma Pact. And this triggered off their wholesale destruction by the Muslims, that's real estimated that more than a million Armenians died. And um, just recently I saw an account written by a a woman who realised later in life that her mother was one of the Armenian survivors who had been forcibly converted and married to a Muslim man who rescued her. And it's just sort of the secret in the family, but she discovered later that her mother was a survivor uh, of that genocide. But there were many women that were taken at that time. Lots of features of jihad in that genocide... Um, one was the often uh, reported offer of conversion to Islam as a means of escaping death, also the abduction of women and children and taking into, into homes. Um, Bhatia describes this uh, in terms of the classical characteristics of uh, of a genocide. Um Bhat-Yayor said this about the Armenian genocide. The genocide of the Armenians was a jihad. Despite the disapproval of many Muslim Turks and Arabs and their refusal to collaborate in the crime, these massacres were perpetuated solely by Muslims and they alone profited from the booty, the victims' property, houses and lands, granted to the Muhajirun, that is the haji, um, the, uh, the, the fighters, and, um, and also the allocation to them of women and children slaves. The elimination of, the, of male children over the age of 12 was in accordance with the commands of jihad and conformed to the age fixed for the payment of the jizya. The four stages of the liquidation, deportation, enslavement, forced conversion and massacre, reproduced the historic conditions of the jihad carried out in the the lands of war, the Dar al-Hab, from the 7th century on. So she said this is a a classic jihad scenario. There are events even today that uh, mimic some of these characteristics, if not all of them. For example, in September of 2005, a reprisal was directed against the Christian Palestinian village of Taibar, on the basis of a a Christian man who had a romance with a Muslim woman. Now, this is a prohibited relationship. Uh, It's a violation of the pact for a Christian man to have a relationship with a Muslim woman. And a report, it was entitled, Muslims Ransack Christian Village, published in the Jerusalem Post in September the 5th, 2005. And it said this, "Um, Efforts were underway on Sunday to calm the situation in this Christian village east of Ramallah, after an attack by hundreds of Muslim men from nearby villages, left many houses and vehicles torched. The incident began on Saturday night and lasted until early Sunday when Palestinian Authority security forces interfered to disperse the the attackers. Residents said several houses were looted and many families were forced to to flee to Ramallah and other Christian villages, although in this case no one was injured. More than 500 Muslim men chanting "Allahu akbar Allah is greater, attacked us at night, said a Taibai resident. They poured kerosene on buildings and set them on fire, and many attackers broke into houses and stole furniture, jewellery and electrical appliances. That's the looting. And they said, it was like a war. And it was. It was a jihad, in fact. They arrived in groups and many of them were holding clubs. So... This is a, a religious attack based on a, a, a sense or an apprehension, understanding that one of the local Christians had broken the conditions of the surrender. Another phenomenon involved in um, a, a, a risk for non Muslims is the abduction of children. There are many reports from the sources that children were vulnerable to being taken. It was very easy to get a child to just recite the Shahada, perhaps a six year old or seven year old and then to say to the parents that the child had converted to Islam, and since the child was now a Muslim, uh, somebody else was the guardian, and the parents had no more rights to intervene in the, in the life of the child. Um, in fact, the, the conversion of these children to Islam is regarded as really meritorious in Islam. Ibn Qudama says the child, if he's, if he's captured, will become a slave, and it's wrong to kill him because to kill him is destroy the wealth of Muslims as a slave, and moreover, as a captive, he'll become a Muslim. So you shouldn't kill children. They're, 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 it's much better to make them into Muslims. And there are a number of uh, instances where this has been documented. For example, Niven Moore, who was British consul in Aleppo in Beirut in 1842, said he'd been informed of several cases where young children had been induced to enter Islam. One mother complained to, her that he, to him that her son had been decoyed away by a Turk and made a Mohammedan. That is, he just said, I'm a Muslim. And the local local Turkish administrator refused to intervene because to do so would have inflamed the sentiments of the whole Muslim population. Muslims would have been deeply offended if you tried to take these young Muslims and make them back into Christians again. Uh, In Yemen, in fact, this was institutionalised. Any child that was uh, orphaned was, by Sharia law, taken away from the Jewish community and forcibly Islamised, And that continued up until the 1950s when the Jews escaped uh, to Israel. course, the Ottomans uh, used to take uh, a certain number of Christian children routinely from the villages and use them for slave soldiers after they were forcibly Islamicized. And um, they were sometimes used as administrators, but more often as soldiers. And they were known as janissaries. And they did a lot of the hard fighting uh, for the Muslims. They were taken from uh, Christian villages and communities in, in Eastern Europe. The rape of women is a very painful and difficult subject here because In a um, a pact violation reprisal or a jihad condition, women can be raped legally in Islam. Um, And they were very vulnerable in terms of legal situation because their testimony was doubly invalid, both being a woman and a non-Muslim. And there are lots of references in the literature about Dhimmi communities that refer to this. Uh, For example, in 1977, um, Lawrence Lube commented on the sexual harassment of Iranian Jewish women. He said, the kidnapping of Jewish women, this is 1977 in, in Iran, especially young virgins and married women too, w- was frightening to Jews. Uh, Lotfali Khanizan took girls from Isfahan and Shiraz for his harem, but lesser men too seized Jewish women for themselves. Today, even Muslim women are pinched and handled by Muslim men, and Jewish women, are, when, when even Muslim women, he said, are harassed. Jewish women are singled out for special treatment because they're not protected by their kinsmen and uh, Jewish men are not allowed to have any means of self-defence and they can't raise a hand against a Muslim so that the the Jewish men will not intervene if the women are being harassed because they're frightened of being killed. So the the Dhimmi system motivates this fear. They're not allowed to defend themselves. So the threat of of rape um, lurks really in the background of of many uh, relationships between uh, Dhimmi communities and Muslim communities. Sometimes, occasionally, you see radicals, hot headed radicals, claiming the right to rape. For example, there was a demonstration in London um, in 2006 against the Danish cartoons, and one man cried out in front of the Danish embassy We will take revenge on you, Alu may, Akbar. May they, that is, he's been speaking about Osama bin Laden and Zawahiri, bomb Denmark so we can invade their country and take their wives as our war booty. Um, This is still a problem in Pakistan, the abduction of women, and uh, one particular difficulty is that once a woman has been abducted, the man who marries her and converts her to Islam then becomes her legal representative. So he's the one that shows up in court if the family raises a case. So Patrick Sukdeo explains the problem. He said, The rule allows Muslim abductors and rapists of Christian women, married Christian women even, to evade conviction by forcing their victim to convert to Islam in front of two witnesses, who'd be friends of the man, who can sign a mullah certificate confirming confirming her conversion. If this is accomplished, the woman's former marriage is annulled, whether she's been married before is irrelevant, and her abductor can freely and legally marry her. So there's a lot of fear in Pakistan amongst Christians about the abduction of women. Um, Two girls, uh, aged 10 and 13, were abducted in June of 2007, Anila and Sabah Yunus, they were travelling to visit their uncle. It was alleged that they were converted to Islam. Their uncle took legal action to try and restore the girls to their parents, but the judge ruled that the two sisters had converted in a, legal, in a legitimate manner to Islam, so they couldn't be restored to their family, and the judge confirmed the validity of the marriages. The kidnappers refused all requests to produce the girls to the court and insisted on speaking on their behalf. Um, and the judge made his findings based on the testimony of the Muslim guardians that were acting on these girls' behalf. So it's a very severe legal incapacity that continues to be a problem. Actually, it's a problem in the West as well. Um, In Australia some years ago, there were reports in the media of uh, 60 or more uh, girls, non-Muslim girls, who'd been gang-raped by uh, Muslim boys, mostly of Lebanese abstraction, and some of those girls uh, took the, the rapists to court, and there were some very famous well-known cases. And what shocked the community was the attitude of the relatives of the boys to the girls in the courtroom and the abuse that was directed against the girls. And the young boys, uh, young men, didn't seem to know that they'd done anything wrong. And what they were doing, I believe, was translating into an Australian context uh, a permission to abuse uh, and sexually harass uh, non-Muslim girls that had been part of the dhimma culture, uh, that they'd grown up with and had been in place for more than 1,000 years. And they come to Australia and they don't understand that that's not the way people live. And so there's this problem. And it was very interesting in the community because some people sort of associated this with Muslims and other Muslims said, "No, oh, that's really insulting to us to blame this on Islam. But the problem was in order to explain why there is a connection with Islam, you'd have to expose the whole dhimmi system and the whole Dhimma approach, which is the basis for the problem. In fact, also in... Um, in uh, Uh, Denmark and in Holland. Uh, Studies have shown that the proportion of Muslim rapists in prison is much, much higher than people from other religious groups. And it's a serious problem in uh, these uh, uh, European countries too, that um, immigrant uh, Muslim men uh, have a high rate of rape. And they're particularly attacking non-Muslim girls. And it's based on the theology of the Dima Pact and the conditions, the laws of jihad. It's an indirect relationship. It's a cultural problem now. Um, but it's grounded in the effect of the religion. Another feature of the jihad that breaks out when there's a pact violation is the seizure of property. and The fear of losing your property is a very serious one. Uh, dhimmi property, according to Islamic law, is part of the fe, um the inheritance really of the Muslims that's been restored to them through conquest and is only retained by the dhimmis as a concession. And if you believe that your Christian neighbour only has his property as a concession, you've been generous to him to let him have it, um, you might be inclined to sort of want to take it back. And uh, seizure of non-Muslim property by Muslims is a serious human rights issue in a number of Islamic nations. In Pakistan, there have been repeated reports of seizure of land. And if the Christian uh, complains, they might be accused of blasphemy or some other charge that they can't defend themselves against. Um, uh, a Bethlehem Christian leader explained, his name is Samir Commissier, uh, uh, that this is a serious problem in Bethlehem. And an important reason is the, this is an important reason for the Christian demographic collapse uh, in Bethlehem. He says, it's a regular phenomenon in Bethlehem. They go to a poor Christian person with a forged power of attorney document. Then they say that we have papers proving you are living on our land. And if you confront them many times, the Christian is beaten you can't do anything about it. The Christian loses his land and he has to run away. So this is the appropriation of, uh, of property, uh, of dhimmi property. Um, it happened to a lot of Jews who fled to Israel after 1948. Uh, in most cases, they were forced to sell their houses at a fraction of the, property, of the value or just abandon them without, uh, without recompense. So these human rights violations, such as uh, tax massacres and, and rape, kidnapping of people, uh, seizure of property, which are happening around the world today, are related to the Dhimma covenant. And from the point of view of Islam, Muslims have a, theoretically a right to do this under the right conditions of a Dhimma pact violation. But the problem is that people are greedy, and uh, if they have this sense of entitlement, they do it even when they, even by Islamic law, when they don't have the have the right to do so. Another thing that's important to note about the Dhimma is that the tax of the Dhimma, the the jizya tax was quite a heavy tax. It's sometimes said that it was very light, um, but it was was quite heavy. Just one example, a scholar called Arthur Triton analysed Jizya payments from the early centuries based on papyri manuscripts from Egypt in 700 to 720, so it's one particular period of time. And he said that the the Jizya rate um, uh, was uh, about a sixth or, or so of the, the total wage for the year, that compared, for example, Muslims pay a zakat, which is 2.5 percent of their annual income, but the Christian um, uh, the, the jizya tax was was more like actually somewhere between the sixth and a half of their annual income, so a very high rate. And there's a lot of evidence from history um, that um, people living under Islam, non-Muslims, uh, would be unable to pay the tax, and, and they would uh, even have to have to flee. Uh, at different times throughout history it's reported in Egypt that Egyptians would just become, Christians would just become refugees and just wander the streets and abandon their property because they were unable to pay Um, there's many reports from the uh, Cairo Geniza, this is the the manuscripts that have been found in the synagogue in Cairo of uh, people who would sold everything they had in order to pay unable to pay and just wandered around as beggars, sometimes the men would go into hiding uh, in order to protect their lives Um, and the American James Riley, who I mentioned was shipwrecked in Morocco, he said that if a Jew couldn't pay the jizya, they were put in prison and beaten until they either died or converted to to Islam. Uh, So it's a very serious burden, this jizya jizya tax. The impact of the DIMA regulations um, was ultimately devastating in many cases for the conquered communities, some communities like Christians in northwest Africa or southern Arabia or Afghanistan disappeared completely. The Dima wasn't sufficient to protect them. And in the, in the 11th century and the 12th century in particular, the Almohad persecutions eliminated Christianity in Muslim Spain uh, under Lucia by massacres, enslavement and deportations. And um, many communities uh, came under enormous pressure and dwindled to just a fraction of their uh, original size. Some try to absorb themselves into the Islamic community, adopting Arabic and uh, trying to become as similar as possible to Muslims. Now, I'd like to speak about the psychological impact, uh, the psychological impact of this system. Like sexism or racism, the dimitude is not just a legal and a social structure, it's a psychology, a psychology of inferiority, a will to serve. As the great um, a Jewish scholar Maimonides said, we have acquiesced, we have agreed submitted, both old and young, to just get used to the humiliation. But Yeor, a scholar of the Dhimmi condition, um, describes the psychology as follows. <coughs> the law required from Dhimmi is a humble demeanour, eyes lowered, a hurried pace. They had to give way to Muslims in the street, remain standing in their presence and keep silent, only speaking to them when given permission. They were forbidden to defend themselves if attacked or to raise a hand against a Muslim on pain of having it amputated. Any criticism of the Quran or Islamic law annulled the Protection Pact. In addition, the dhimmi was duty-bound to be grateful since it was Islamic law that spared his life. The whole corpus of these practices formed an unchanging behaviour pattern which was perpetuated from generation to generation for centuries. It was so deeply internalised that it escaped critical evaluation and invaded the realm of self-image, which was henceforth dominated by a conditioning in self-devaluation... The situation, determined by a corpus of precise legislation and social behaviour patterns based on prejudice and religious traditions, induced the same type of mentality in all dhimmi groups. It has four major characteristics, vulnerability, humiliation, gratitude and alienation. The fundamental component, she said, of the dhimmi mentality is established from the moment he consents to submit to a system which removes his basic right to life. So what she's saying is that this system, over centuries, changes the psychology of people, and it makes them uh, feel terrible about themselves. They feel bad and inferior. It makes them feel grateful to Muslims. Um, they also feel very vulnerable and insecure, and feel alienated. That is, they don't feel at home in their own ancestral land. It's one of the complaints I often hear from Copts from Egypt. They complain that the Muslims treat them. The Muslims treat them as though they are ex- outsiders. But, in fact, the word cop means Egyptian. They are the original Egyptians. Um, Johann Savidjic published a a book on the uh, Balkan Peninsula Peninsula in the early 20th century, and he describes the effect of this intergenerational fear of violence, um, the way it impacted upon Serbs uh, in, in in that space. He said, They became accustomed to belonging to an inferior, servile class whose duty it is to make themselves acceptable to the Master, to humble themselves before him and to please him. These people become closed-mouthed, secretive, cunning. They lose all confidence in others. They grow used to hypocrisy and meanness because these are necessary in order for them to live and avoid violent punishment. And then he explains um, the the feelings of fear. He said, whenever there's a Muslim uh, robber reported in the neighbourhood, all the Christians are just absolutely terrorised. He said, in certain parts of Macedonia, they don't tell you how they fought against the Turks or against the Muslim Albanians, but rather about the way they managed to run away, the flee, or the the ruse, the trick they used to escape. In Macedonia, he said, I heard people say, even in our dreams, we flee from the Turks and from the Albanians. It's true that, um, he said, that after about 20 years of freedom, some of them have gained their composure, but there's a deep-seated feeling, he said, of fear that still exists in the masses. I don't know if you've seen My Fat Greek Wedding, but in that there's the old uh, um, Greek grandmother and she's always terrified that there's Turks running around her. <laughs> and it's, um, it's kind of funny in the film, but it's based in this deep fear, fear of being raped, actually being attacked. And uh, it's, a, it's an old, old story uh, that she carried this fear with her in, in, in a demented or senile state in her old age. This was one thing that was still real to her that she was afraid of, the, afraid of the Turks. So on the one hand, you have the sense of inferiority that the dhimmi has, and particularly of gratitude and, and humiliation. On and the other hand, you have the Muslims who feel superior, and this goes together. Islam is the religion of masters and rulers, as one Iranian friend, to, friend said to me, and Christianity is the religion of slaves. So this is really terrible for Muslims because it... It, uh, it puts them in this dominating, abusive category. And it's really terrible for, um, for the Christians or for the non-Muslims because they, their humanity is, is, is kind of destroyed and, and, and people can't understand their own, own identity and how they fit in the world properly. So this system of dimitude creates deeply ingrained attitudes on both sides from generation to generation. Just as racism still exists in America, even though slavery's been abolished a long time ago... Um, uh, so the institution of dimitude continues to affect and dominate relations between Muslims and non-Muslims, even when the jizya tax is still a long-distant memory. So uh, these, these dynamics can continue on a long time. Just as I said, in Egypt today, if you hit someone on the neck, it's a very deep insult, even though people have forgotten why, why that's the case. <coughs> now, what's been happening in the last century is quite important to understand. I'll, I'll just... Uh, draw this section to a close by speaking about the changes of the last century and also the return of this system in many Muslim countries. Because of the influence of Europe and the intervention of Europe and America and, and other Western powers, the dhimmi system began to decline during the 19th century and well into the 20th century. In fact, even in 1788, a Muslim scholar in Cairo was complaining that the dhimmi's were um, uh, acting up out of their station they were dressing like Muslims and copying their clothes. They were riding horses and building tall towers um, because already then Europe was getting powerful and the influence of Europe's power was felt by Christians in Egypt who were having commercial dealings with the Europeans. Things were changing. And, uh, and a commentator in the first half of the 19th century in Baghdad also complained. He said, None of these, these traditions for the paying the jizya are in, are in place. The people of the dhimma have all these privileges more than Muslims and they're not paying the jizya with their hand anymore. And uh, he said, this is the weakness of Islam. So he was complaining that the system was breaking down. So progressively across the Muslim world, the system began to deteriorate and break down, sometimes by external pressure, sometimes by changes internally. The local Muslims complained, and sometimes there were massacres and reprisals, even up to the Armenian genocide as one example. And this caused a lot of tensions, tensions. Uh, in fact, the Bosnians were very angry at the increasingly good position of Serbs and, and Croatians in that time and the Turks had to put down a, a, a resistance rebellion by the Bosniaks, the Bosnians, in 1850 because they were complaining about, um, about how well the Croats and the Serbs were doing. And there were a lot of wars of liberation that were fought um, even from the 1600s on. Uh, the Abyssinia was liberated with the help of the of the Portuguese in the 1600s. The British ended Muslim uh, rule in India in 1857. The Greeks, the Bulgarians, the Romanians, the Serbs, the Hungarians fought for their freedom during these centuries and achieved various degrees of success. Some groups like the Assyrians and the Maronites um, uh, were not successful. There was a a significant genocide of Assyrians in the 1920s and another one that's been taking place recently in Iraq under, under occupation. Uh, and the Armenians, uh, they did gain a country, but they also suffered tremendous losses as well. Today, there is no internationally recognised Islamic State which imposes a Jizya taxation system on non-Muslim citizens. However, there are Muslim voices that argue that the Jizya should be brought back, and um, there's various uh, people that are calling for it in the Philippines, uh, in Iraq, um, by al-Qaeda, in different places that are asking for this to be brought back. Um, You certainly see in places where there's been an Islamic revolution, such such as under Islam, uh, that the situation of non-Muslims have deteriorated enormously. The Iranian democracy activist Frank Nikbar describes the changes after the Iranian revolution of 1979. He said non-Muslims had become dhimmis, second-class citizens with limited rights or non-citizens with absolutely no rights, based just on their beliefs. The Jews, Christians and Zoroastrians were given certain rights but their lives were legally valued as less than a half or an eighth of a Muslim's life depending on the source of Sharia law that the judge decided to use. They lost the right to testify in court against Muslims and they lost all sorts of imaginable rights to material or social status which might demonstrate any semblance of superiority or power over Muslims. So that's an example of uh, a great deterioration that's taken place. There have also been uh, Islamic scholars, uh, radically minded, who've been arguing for the restoration of the dhimmi system. Saeed Qutb, a a famous um, Muslim scholar and uh, involved with the Muslim Brotherhood, in his commentary called In the Shade of the Quran," uh, he argues in favour of the dhimmi system and said it should be brought back. He said Jews and Christians have the same characteristics today that they had in in Muhammad's time and the command to fight against them is is still valid. And he said mankind will never be fully liberated until non-Muslims are subjugated. He said this, "Um, When the jizya is paid, the process of liberating mankind is completed by giving every individual the freedom of choice based on conviction. Anyone who's not convinced may continue to follow his faith. However, he has to pay the submission tax to fulfill a number of objectives. By paying this tax, known as jizya, he declares that he will not stand in physical opposition to the efforts advocating the true divine faith. Now, you might find his logic a bit hard to understand, so let me explain it to you. What he's saying is that people will never be freely true, truly free to choose Islam until non-Muslims and their status is low. That is, if non-Muslims are doing well or their houses look good or they're particularly happy, they'll never really be free to choose Islam because they'll be seduced by the advantage of being a non-Muslim. So you have to make sure that non-Muslims are as inferior as possible and subjugate them under the dhimma system so that people will be genuinely free to become Muslims. And he said only when the dhimma is restored will there be genuine freedom of religious choice. So that's the argument that he uses. Uh, You might think that's an absurd way of thinking, but that's the way he's arguing. And um, that's why he said that Islam must smash all other forms of power so that Islam is dominant. Now, there have been a number of calls to revive the jizya, and uh, that's come from, as I've said, from many different places, Hamas, has said it wants to bring it back. Um, There have been calls for it to be restored in Yemen, in parts of Egypt, in Pakistan. Uh, Recently the Taliban has been collecting the jizya again from Sikhs and Christians. Um, And uh, there was even a guy on the streets of New York, August 2009, Yunus Abdullah Muhammad, street preaching in New York, and he cried out, I saw his video on YouTube, we ask that Allah give victory and collect the jizya from Jews and Christians and establish Islam all over the world. During our lifetime, so it's still a live issue. Even though the influence of the West suppressed it, it's on its way back. But what's probably more important than calls for the Jesus return is the reintroduction of Sharia law. A good example is Pakistan. In 1947, Pakistan was established as a secular state, and its founding father Muhammad Ali Jinnah declared in a speech just before partition. He said, "You may belong to any religion or caste or creed." and that has nothing to do with the business of the state. In fact, the flag of Pakistan has a white stripe next to the flagpole, which represents the non-Muslims in Pakistan. And sometimes the non-Muslims and the Christians say, that's us, we're holding the flag up. (laughs) Uh, And that was a concession to them at the time, but I doubt whether they'd put that on the flag today. Uh, Because since 1947, there's been a process of Islamisation. In 1956, Pakistan was proclaimed an Islamic republic. In 1979 to 80, a Sharia court was established, and laws were introduced to enforce penalties about alcohol theft and adultery. In 1984, a new evidence, law of evidence was uh, promulgated, which downgraded non-Muslims' testimony in court cases. That's one of the key features of the Dhimma system: non-Muslim testimony is invalid. In 1985, the national constitution was Islamized. In 1986, blasphemy against Islam was declared a capital offence. This is a key plank in the anti-Dhimma legal systems. It prevents criticism of Islam by non-Muslims, and by Muslims as well, but specifically non-Muslims. In 1991, the Sharia is declared to be the supreme law in Pakistan. That includes the Dhimma system. That is part of Sharia law. In 1993, the Supreme Court ruled that fundamental constitutional rights are subject to the injunctions of Islam as contained in the Quran and the Sunnah. That means that the human rights that Christians have in Pakistan are those that Sharia law gives them. So they have no more rights technically than the dhamma allows them to have. In 1998, John Joseph, Catholic bishop of Faisalabad, committed suicide, which is a very unusual thing for a Catholic bishop to do, in protest against the worsening plight of Christians in Pakistan. So this steadily worsening, worsening human rights situation It can be found in a number of Muslim countries. Pakistan is just one example. We see rising in Pakistan forcible conversions uh, to Islam. And people that leave Islam have to to do that in secret because of the danger of apostasy law penalties. Marriages between Muslim women and non-Muslim men are not recognised in Pakistan today. And children that are born to such marriages are considered illegitimate without actual parents. If a woman converts to Islam in Pakistan today, her marriage to the non-Muslim is dissolved by that. Women are increasingly abducted in Pakistan and the men are rarely brought to justice. There are restrictions on worship. One pastor, the Reverend Nur Alam, was killed apparently because it was thought that he had plans to build a church building. There are restrictions on displaying non-Muslim religious images and symbols in Pakistan as well. The state funds mosques but impedes non-Muslim buildings. There are restrictions on criticizing islam blasphemy laws there 's legal vulnerability. Courts may decide to reject a christian 's evidence in accordance with Islamic law. also the compensations that are given uh, for for violations of human rights against non muslims it 's less than that against muslims there 's less financial restitution for example if you if you cause someone to lose their hand the non Muslim hand is worth less than the muslim 's hand. Um, all official governments all government officials whatever their faith is, have to swear an oath of loyalty to Islam. Passports hold the religious, have a display of the holder's religion, so your passport or your student card shows what religion you are. So your teacher has to be informed of what your faith is, and uh, this causes wide discrimination, and there have been increasing attacks on non-Muslims, on Christians, uh, by the police and, and by others. Now, this story of gradually worsening human rights situations could be repeated in Malaysia, in Egypt, in Iran, in in many countries. There's a steady worsening of human rights. Uh, The Copts of Egypt are under increasing pressure. They've been, in recent decades, pushed out of positions of authority in society and of social significance, and they are pushed into a smaller and a smaller space. There have been increasing reports of women being abducted in Egypt recently. And uh, of young girls and even wives of priests are a favourite target in order to intimidate the Christian community. You abduct the woman, uh, rape her, force her to convert to Islam and then refuse to release her back to the Christian community. So there's no state in the world today where the Limmer system is applied as it was applied 100 years ago in some Muslim countries or even in in Afghanistan 50 years ago. Um, But nevertheless, in state after state throughout the world, Muslim state... Uh, there's discrimination, increasing principles of non-reciprocity being brought in. And this is the real key, is that in every country where there is persecution of Christians and Islam is the cause, the pattern of the discrimination or the persecution can be traced to the Dhimma laws. It tracks persecution, discrimination against Christians and and other non-Muslims in Muslim countries, tracks the Dhimma laws, point for point for point. These are not just things that people make up, these are things that Islamic law mandates. So that's why, although Jizya is not officially paid, and these countries officially abolished the Dima system long ago, nevertheless, the power of all these laws applies. And uh, this is a very serious, one of the most serious human rights issues in the world today.